0: Uh, with just a a short blasts of the shofar. While this doesn't count for the mitzvah, which we'll be doing on Sunday, we do have the custom to blow the shofar throughout the month of Elul, the month leading up to the holiday, and we do it in order to prepare ourselves. So instead of just showing up and hearing the blast and expecting it to trigger us into teshuva, we prepare a little bit. So we do a few shorter blasts during the month leading up. So I'll do a couple of the shofar blasts And then we'll share some, God willing, some Rosh Hashanah inspiration. have some water here. For those that have a drink with them, we'll make a blessing. Baruch, Atah, Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech, Haolam, Shehako, Niya Bidvaro. Let me just make sure everyone can see us. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an interesting debate, a discussion in the Talmud. The debate is: would it have been better, easier, if we were never born? In the words of the Talmud, No la Adam Shalo Nivra. Perhaps it would have been better or easier for a person to never have been born. And they debate, is it easier that we're alive or not? And they take a vote. And most of the sages in that academy voted that it would have been easier if we were never born. Because being born, we're faced with so many uncertainties, pandemics, fears, difficulties and struggles that perhaps it would have been better not to have been born so the talmud says they voted it would have been noach lo adam shalom nivra perhaps it would have been easier that you weren't born but achshav but now that you were born you You should search your actions and improve your ways so chasidus takes this interesting discussion of the talmud And says, specifying the words, Noach Lola Adam. Noach comes from the word Menachem, which means comfort, or it would have been more comfortable or easier for a person not to have been born. But that doesn't necessarily mean it would have been better. Chasidis explains there's a difference between if it was easier or if it's better. Perhaps it was easier not to have been born, but it's certainly better that we are born. Because it's better to be born, yes, with challenges like we all face collectively right now. Life may not be easy, but life is good. Life is a gift. Life is a bracha, life is a blessing. The world at times can be a beat up world. Let's face it, we're dealing with a pandemic. And it's hard for 7.7 billion people in the world, each and every one of us feel it. And the Talmud still says it's better for us to be born, maybe not easier, but better. And we all know that through these challenges, it actually makes us stronger. Last week, we hosted an event leading up to 9-11, which we just commemorated the the 19th anniversary uh, last Friday on September 11th. And the day after the attacks in 2001, there was um, an article in the New York Times about a woman and her story, how she was handicapped. She was in crutches and she worked on the 64th floor of the second tower and when the plane hit and they were frantically trying to make their way down through the stairwell her colleagues and friends her employees they were helping her down because she couldn't make it down herself but after 10 flights of stairs on the 54th floor they couldn't do it anymore it was too difficult to be carrying her And they were trying it all together, and they they couldn't do it. The staircase was over 100 degrees, but there was this one man that she only knew at the time as Lois, who was a colleague of hers, but they weren't really close. They didn't really know each other well, just just the first name. He picked her up on that 54th floor, put put her over his shoulders. And he did not let her down until she was in the safety of an ambulance. In fact, on the 15th floor, in the stairwell, a firefighter told Lois, told him, You're out of danger now. You could put her down. She'll be okay over here. You could continue going. We'll get it, we'll take care of her. But he didn't listen he brought her down. And here you have a professional safety worker, a firefighter saying she's out of danger. He could have listened, but instead he chose to listen to another voice. A voice that said, I won't be leaving a handicapped person in this hot stairwell. The Lewis that went in to work that morning was a different Lewis that came out later that day. Where did that change happen? Somewhere on those 50 floors. When he lifted up the woman on the 54th floor, he was just acting out of kindness, perhaps a nature to help. But as he continued down that stairwell, with the heat rising, his muscles aching, and sweat all over with hundreds of panicked people pushing to make their own way to safety. Somewhere along that path, his instinct to just maybe let her in a safe place gave way to a choice. He chose to stay with that woman at whatever cost. And the Lewis that entered that building was a man with a potential for greatness. But the Lewis that left that building, Tower Two of the World Trade Center, that Lewis that emerged was a great man. Sometimes we fall. Or in the words of King David, <speaking in Hebrew> We can fall seven times, at <speaking in Hebrew> the righteous ones. They falter seven times, but yet they rise. They rise up again. Everyone has their share of failures and disappointments. But what differentiates is how do we react when we fail? How to talk to ourselves when we're feeling down and out, when we're feeling bruised broken, and in pain. Do we focus on the shame of failure? Or do we have the courage to grow from our setbacks, to learn from our trials? Or in the simple words, do we give up or do we get up? I want to share to you a story that was shared by a woman, Goldie Rosenberg, about her father. Years back, he built a sweater factory in upstate New York in the Catskills. He had many employees that he employed and he supported. But along came a recession, and he lost everything his whole business and factory was wiped away. He lost his income and he had 10 children. That's 12 mouths to feed. He tried desperately to find work. He was trying to keep his home. He even sold his car. And the only job that he was able to find was in Manhattan. In a car mechanic business, to work nights, till late at night. He already sold his car. The travel to Manhattan was three hours as it was, and he would have to take a bus. But even that was something that he wanted to save on, the the transportation costs. So he decided he was going to spend the week, the weekdays in the city. And only for Shabbos, for the weekend, on Thursday night, he would not even get on a bus to to save every dollar. He was trying to hitch rides. And one Thursday night, it was a winter evening in Manhattan in New York, and he was trying to hitch a ride near the exit to the eighty-seven highway, that takes you to upstate New York. But it was pouring rain. It was torrential downpour. And it was freezing. It was icy. And as he was waiting for a ride, the cars riding by would throw icy cold water right on him. And it took him a long time till he finally got a ride. And after finally getting home to his worried wife and children who were staying up, wondering when is our father coming home? He told them the story of the rain. He was drenched. And they said, "How how did you manage for so many hours in the dark, in the cold, in the rain? What kept you waiting? And he said, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what kept me. I'll tell you what I did. I sang. And the children all asked, you what? And he said, I started singing. I was singing my heart out. You sang? Yes, I stood there and sang my favorite melodies. And with every new torrential pour. And with every time the icy rain from the tires were thrown at me, I would sing louder. And I even danced. I danced by myself. And Goldie, the young girl, listening to her father's story. And she, with a smile on her face, Goldie concludes her story and says that my father told us sometimes that the strain and the stress that is so tough You just have to sing. Friends, music is a very interesting phenomenon. How is music produced? It always requires pressure and force. Take a drum, for example. You have to stretch the skin along the frame of the drum and only then could you pound on it and music could come. Could the beat be played? The same with a guitar. You have to pull the strings as far as it could go and with a violin as well. And even a piano has strings that are pulled when you press, when you hit. And the shofar, my friends, is the same. It requires exerting your breath into a narrow, restricted hole into that place of pressure. And then as a result, you have this beautiful sound the mitzvah of the shofar, to remind us that specifically in the times of our pressure, when there's torrential downpours, when you seem lost and alone and dark, can you truly sing? Can you truly grow? So ironically, as we see from music, it's the pressure itself of the strings on the guitar Or the skin on the drum. That creates this beautiful sound. And we are called upon to make our music heard in the world. And in the times of pressure, in the times when it seems lost. Is when we can play the most beautiful sounds. When we are faced with difficulties in life we can either buckle or snap like that string on a guitar that snaps under pressure or we can channel that pressure into being beautiful music that is being composed because sometimes we just have to sing. Have you ever taken note a glass by a chuppah? At a Jewish wedding, we get married under a chuppah canopy and everything is set. The bride and the groom, the families are looking their finest. The rabbi does the blessings under the chuppah. The cantor sings his piece. It's magical. They're about to embark on their new journey. The flowers are gorgeous. The cameras are flashing. People are quelling. At the peak of the chuppah, you know, you've been there. The last moment of the ceremony, perhaps you witnessed at a wedding, at a Jewish wedding, at every Jewish wedding for taking place for millennia. The groom lifts his foot and breaks a glass. The reason why we do this is to make a point. It's actually, it's a custom that's brought in Jewish law. That to say that as beautiful as this event is, And that our celebration is so high. It's still not as it should be. Because we're living in a world that is with pain. And sometimes despair. And Jerusalem is still not rebuilt. And we don't have our temple. We don't have that true time of peace that we're yearning for. So we break the glass to remind us that there's still anguish and fragmentation. Even in the times of a joy... We don't forget. And okay, that's the custom and we've been doing it. And I get it. But what's striking is that exactly at that moment, when the, bro- when the glass is broken, do you know the next two words that everyone sings together? Mazel tov. They wait, they wait. And at the moment they hear the shatter of the glass, we all sing Mazel tov. The band starts playing and everyone starts dancing, hugging. They break the glass and they sing Mazatov. If you think about it, it sounds a little bit like schizophrenia. You're in the middle of breaking a glass to remember the anguish, to remember destruction. Give it some time, spend some time on it. But no, right when it's broken, we whisk off to Mazatov. We yell it out with such joy. If we're remembering pain and difficulty, linger on it a little bit. Remember that sadness and mourning for a little while, but we launch straight into celebration. Because right then and there, we want to express our confidence that in the wake of pain and destruction, there is hope, there is mazal, there is future even in the wake of pain and destruction. We marry the two, not only the bride and the groom, but we marry the pain, the memory of loss and breakingness and fragmentation. And we right away remind ourselves of the hope. We look forward to the future with joy and with optimism. And that is our people. We've been fraught with pain. And yet we hold on to hope. As you've read stories and heard stories perhaps from parents and grandparents of pogroms, people in our community who went through communism in Russia, or went through the camps, and even walking to the chambers, the gas chambers, the words on their lips were prayers of hope. And, and for, in fact, it's, it makes perfect sense that in the time of the chuppah, the time of the, when we break the glass to remember destruction and fragmentation, we at the same time scream mazel tov and remind ourselves of hope and future and optimism. Right there in the pain is the celebration. King David writes a powerful verse that actually right when we blow the shofar, which we'll be doing on Sunday, the first verse we recite during, during the Shofar service is a beautiful verse from the book of Psalms, King David's songs that he's saying to God. It says, God, I'm looking for answers, but his words are, Min anani From out of my narrowness and pressured places, I've called out to God. And God answered me with broadness, with expansion. Because specifically in the place of our pressure and narrowness, King David was saying, God, don't abandon us. From out of distress I am calling. But God answers us. God gives us strength. And we have to sing it. Sometimes we just have to sing in the rain. Many people in Israel and throughout the world heard of a woman. Her name is Miriam Peretz. She wrote a book called Miriam's Song. Miriam was born in Morocco and immigrated to Israel decades ago with poor parents and a poor family. And she took menial jobs as a teenager to provide, to help her family, to buy appliances for their home. And she used the money as the best she could. She even put herself through school and she threw herself in her studies. She earned two degrees and she never complained much. She never even had the time to notice her sorry state. But she grew, earned degrees, got married and moved to the Sinai. In 1979, after the peace accord with Egypt, she needed to move, she had to be evacuated and she moved to Jerusalem, she became a teacher and shortly after she became the principal of that school. But then in the eighties, tragedy struck. Her son Uriel was killed by terrorists, during his army service, that dreaded knock on the door when the army representatives arrive to give Miriam and her husband Eliezer the unbearable news, the loss of their firstborn son. And she writes in her book, life was never the same. They kept his chair empty by holidays and Shabbats. His humor and his charm was missed by his siblings. And his father, Eliezer, to perpetuate his son's name, was working on honoring with a legacy for his son. But five years later, Eliezer himself passed away. Even the doctors agreed that while it didn't come up in tests, they said he died from a broken heart. Miriam was left without a husband to support her children, her partner and her best friend. The loneliness, the pain was excruciating. But Miriam made a choice. Onwards. In Hebrew, yalla, let's get moving. Despite all the pain, she would remain present for her family. But then the unthinkable happened. Almost 12 years to the day that Uriel was killed in service, she, seems, she sees through her window men in army uniform approaching her door. She ignored the knocks. Her second son Eliran was then in service. She refused to answer to the IDF representatives. In her mind, as long as she didn't answer the door, Her son, Eliran, was still alive, but it was short-lived. They shared the news that at the Gaza border, her son, Eliran, was killed. How could tragedy strike this twice? Now, she had four grandchildren, Eliran's children, and a young daughter-in-law. She described she went through all the stages of pain, Eventually, she came to the realization that she was powerless over what happened and that I can't bring back my sons. And we don't get to decide, she writes, when we are born and when we leave this earth. But as long as I am alive, she writes, I have the ability to wake up each day and live a purposeful life. She goes on to say, towards the end of her book, how grateful my son would be if he was just able to hear his own children saying, Abba, one more time. And she says that I could still hear her sons. I can't allow myself to seclude. I need to be there for them. And of course, she admits it's not easy. And she would be justified if she just wanted to stay in bed. But I kept moving. There is still so much that I can do. I can walk, I can see, I can share, I can love. I can think. Each day, every morning, I make that choice again. That is, I will live. Lechayim to life. Now Miriam Perez is active. She speaks to many IDF soldiers at different base, bases across Israel. She goes to cities across Israel and visits bereaved families. And she volunteers her time to worthy, worthy organizations. She is a legend in Israel. There's people that just come up to her and just want to hug. And her smile, her patience opens up people's hearts. Some days will be bad days, but many will be good days. So we have to keep on moving. Her message is to the world, if I can do it, so can you. And interesting, the title of her, of her book is in Hebrew, Shirat Miriam, which is Miriam's song. Miriam, the matriarch, the Miriam, the older, the older sister of Moses, the leader of the Jews in Egypt. And by the splitting of the sea, her name was Miriam from the word mar, which, from, which is from the word bitter, because she lived, she endured the most bitter period of the Jews' exile in Egypt, the Jews' enslavement. So her parents gave her the name Miriam, because when she was born, it was during such a pressured, painful, and torturous time. And then the Torah records her beautiful song that Miriam sang with the woman at the splitting of the sea. to appreciate the song, no matter what may come. Miriam is saying, Miriam Perez in Israel is saying, I won't sit back and feel sorry for myself. I will continue to make beautiful music in this world. Because sometimes when it's just too much, friends, we have to just sing. Someone once asked Abraham Tversky, who's a doctor and a rabbi why is there so much suffering in the world and the avram twersky rabbi avram twersky responded i don't know but i never met a truly strong person who had an easy life because we grow from struggle why i don't know but we know that we can take adversity and make that adversity and turn it into a huge impact to those around us and to ourselves included. The Yom Kippur War, many of you listening remember it clearly and vividly. It was one of the bloodiest wars in Israel's history, but it was still miraculous because of the numbers stacked up against us. One of the leaders of this war of 1973 was Moshe Levy. He was one of only 40 people that was honored with the Gibor Yisrael Medal, a certain honor received of Gibor Yisrael, which means the mighty of Israel. And during that war, he and his unit, he was a sergeant of his unit that were defending the Budapest outpost. It was the only bunker there to withstand the Egyptian attack. A few years ago, Moshe Levy shared a story. He gave an interview and he says that in my unit, there was 98 men. Only one professed himself to be religious. It was a Yemenite Jew by the name of Zandani. One of the first days after the outbreak was Saturday morning, Shabbat, And he was told on radio to expect a massive attack. It was tanks and infantry from Egypt that were coming to attack. And he was told on his radio that you need to hold that line. Because behind it, there is nothing to protect all the way till Tel Aviv. You are the last line of defense to protect our homeland. And Sergeant Levy said, I have 98 men. He was pleading for reinforcements, but they told him, there will be none forthcoming. Israel is being attacked from all sides, and we just don't have the manpower to give you more. You're on your own. Soon after, they started hearing rumbling, and the rumblings were getting louder. They started to panic. Avner, one of the soldiers, turned to the sergeant and he said, Sergeant, what are we going to do? Before Moshe Levi could come up with an answer, Zandani, the religious one in the group, stood up and he pulled out of his pocket a book of songs sung by King David. And he said, Hashem melokeinu imanu. The God of Israel is with us. He started reading and praying. And all the soldiers, they quickly put on their helmets, which were on the floor because of the heat of the day. They put on their helmets to use it as a kippah, as a yarmulke. And they started reciting with Zandani. They had no idea what they were saying. They can't even remember the last time they prayed. But they found themselves to every word. They were just saying, Amen, Amen. Just repeating and reciting these words, Amen, Amen. Sergeant Levy says in his interview that the experience at that moment, you had to be there firsthand to explain it, to understand it. I felt so close to God at that moment. We were beyond religious at that moment. We were more than physical soldiers," he says. "We were malache elokim. We were angels of God." I stopped Zandani and I addressed the unit, and I said that when Avner came to me earlier and asked me what are we gonna do, I didn't have an answer, but Zandani just gave us the answer. We are not here just to protect Israel. We're here to protect our past our present and our future. I am making a resolution, says Sergeant Levy. I promise that if I survive today, I will put on tefillin every day for the rest of my life. And soon after the battle began and they fought with all their might. They fired bazookas and mortars. Zandani continued praying through it all and they were answering amen to the words that they were able to hear as they were fighting. The rest was miraculous. He says that every shot was a direct hit. Tanks were exploding. They were running out of ammunition. They thought this is over, we have nothing left. But just when they were about to run out, the Egyptians started retreating. It was a clear and open miracle, he writes. Many were wounded. But none were killed. None except one. Zandani. That religious one that inspired them all to fight with all their might. That gave us the strength to battle. His life was taken. As for me, Sergeant Levy says, my left arm was blown off. That left arm, which I vowed to put tefillin on, was taken from me. I spent many months in the hospital, he writes, he says, but he couldn't get over this question that bothered him. How could it be? I took on myself a promise, a mitzvah, to do tefillin finally. And it was taken from me. And Zandani was the one that was, chosen, was killed. Two years later, he was flying to, to New York to have a, a new arm fitted. And a friend of his told him, why don't you go visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe? This is in the mid-70s. He wasn't interested, but he was told that the Lubavitcher Rebbe wants to meet you. So he said, okay. He went and he met the Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York. We spoke for 45 minutes about the military lessons learned from that war. And I was astounded, he says, of the Rebbe's breath of knowledge and insight. But what struck me the most were his penetrating eyes. And I felt embraced. And I felt warm in the Rebbe's presence. So I asked him this question that has been bothering me. And I felt the courage to protest with the Rebbe. Why was this man of faith killed? Why of all my limbs was the one that I chose to do the mitzvah of tefillin and now I can't do it? Why was that the one taken? I pledged to do this mitzvah. The Rebbe responded that by the laws of nature, this was not a battle that you could have won. Zandani empowered each and every one of you to rise above the laws of nature to rise above the constraints constraints of the physical he climbed zandani climbed to a place where his physical body couldn't contain that holy neshama that holy soul of his he gave his life so that the rest of you might live and as for you that arm that you pledged to fill in was the pledge that saved you but that arm which you pledged that became your shield because the sharp nail was supposed to go straight and be fatal but that arm shielded you and your life was spared after years two years of agonizing struggling with this dilemma I finally found my peace, he says. Because the stronger our relationship is with God, our friends, the stronger we will have the strength to carry on. In his book, Night, that many students read, and I discussed it with some high school students, Elie Wiesel records his horrors of the concentration camps, seeing his own father dying in front of him. He writes, never will I forget the flames that consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget, writes Ali Wizal of blessed memory, the moments that murdered my God and turned my dreams to ashes. Never. These are raw, painful words emanating from a soul wrapped with agony in a crisis of faith. But Wiesel said that there was one occasion that helped him find himself. And he shared this on many occasions. He says it was a faithful encounter with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It was in the mid 60s. And in a conversation they had for many hours, dealing with the psychological, with the emotional conversation that actually carried on for many years between the Rebbe and in correspondence with Elie Wiesel. But at one point of his book, where he records this in his book, The Gates of the Forest, Elie Wiesel says that when I met the Rebbe, the Rebbe invited me in. And towards the beginning, the Rebbe asked him, "What, Eli? what do you expect from me? What can I do? What are you hoping that I can do for you? His initial response to the Rebbe was nothing. I'm not here to ask for anything. But by the end, after hours of deep conversation with the Rebbe, he said, at the beginning, you asked me, Rebbe, what is it that I can do for you? The truth is, there is something. Ever since my father died, I had not been able to mourn properly. For neither for my father, nor for the other members of my family, from vizhnits that were taken from me. I lost my ability to cry. I don't cry, he says to the Rebbe. The the fountain of tears has been dried up. So here I am asking the Rebbe to please teach me how to cry again. The Rebbe replied, Eli, more more than I can teach you how to cry, I will teach you how to sing. More important than mourning for your loved ones with tears is remembering your loved ones with song. It was a hot day in B'nai Brak section of Tel Aviv, Israel. There were many impatient Israelis. You know, the The serenity prayer in New York is God, give me patience and give it to me now. So you can imagine what it's like in Israel when you have impatient Israelis on a hot day waiting for their bus. This was a a bus to take them from B'nai Brak, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And there were many waiting for the route, the bus number 402 and the bus was like classically late it was an egges they were impatient this the, the people at the stop the passengers were waiting schwitzing the babies were crying the old men were kvetching and finally an egged bus pulls up they're happy finally but they see on the front of the bus it says route 318 to Rehobot pulling up. And they are so upset. The bus pulls up. The door opens. Rehobot, come on in. There was no one going to Rehobot. They all wanted to go to Jerusalem. And another bus pulls up. They are so mad. They are fuming. They said, how could you do this? Think of the elderly waiting here in the sun. He says, I'm sorry. I'm just a bus driver. This is my route. Think of the babies missing their nap times. They need to go to Jerusalem. It pulled at his heart. He's like, okay, okay, come on in. We're going to Jerusalem. They couldn't believe it. Their prayers are answered. They all mount up the the steps of the bus one by one, thanking the bus driver, praising him, hugging him. The bus driver changes the 318 route, fiddles with the numbers. He puts in route 402. They're going to Jerusalem. The whole bus ride, people are singing. They're praising him. One of the passengers asks asks for the mic and he makes an announcement and he says, this bus driver is an angel of God. Never before have we seen such a kind-hearted man. May God bless you with all the blessings for you and your family. May you live a long, healthy, prosperous life. Everyone says, amen, they clap. They arrive to Jerusalem. They get off one by one, thanking him again. And then there's just one person left on the bus. And he says, sir, Adoni, before I go down, before I I disembark, I have to ask you, how did you do that? You're going to lose your job. It's a nice thing you did. But sir, you're going to get fired. You can't just switch bus routes. Why did you do that? the bus driver looks to make sure no one else was on the bus. And he says, I'll tell you what happened. We were at the bus depot. And in the bus depot, there's video screens of the busy bus stops. There's, uh, for security, they have video screens, video uh, and screens at the depot. And they saw the restlessness of the group waiting for the bus 422, 402. And the supervisor went in and he says, okay, we need a driver. Who's going? Who's going? And Shimon says, it's not me. I'm not going there. Last time I went, they cursed me out. I'm not going back there. And the other person said, last time I went, someone spat at me. I am not going. So I said, says the bus driver, I'll do it. You'll see. I'll turn all their curses. I'll turn it into blessings. They said, that's impossible. No way, I've been there, I know the roundiness, I know the people. And I said, trust me, you just watch. So I got up, and I tra- changed when I got onto the bus, before leaving the bus depot, I changed the Route 402, I changed it to 318, as if it's going to Rehoboth. I pulled in, and everyone was so mad, and I said, I'll switch it. Really, it was the right bus the entire time. But I'll tell you, the bus driver says, I have never been blessed like I've been blessed today since my bar mitzvah. Because the very set of circumstances that can fill your hearts with joy and gratitude, it's all a matter of perspective. You just need to change your vantage point. Let's face it, friends, we're living through perhaps some of our most challenging times we've ever faced. Some of us have never seen times like this. Some of us have not been to work since March. Or since since March, we haven't been back to school. Some of us are struggling emotionally, financially, socially. Grandparents are not seeing their grandchildren. Some... Many have lost family members. Many more have family members that were severely ill. It's difficult. So how do we contend with these times? First is by carving out a place of gratitude and thankfulness. Many of our grandparents lived through great depressions, lived during difficult times. Adina's grandfather was a POW of the World War. And yet they managed to persevere. They managed to raise families and fight, put a roof over their heads, put clothing on their families. For thousands of years, Jews wake up in the morning with a prayer. My children know it from infancy. They say it as a young toddler. They say, Thank you, God, for giving me life, for giving me a day, for giving me a purpose. I'm just thankful to be alive. Unfortunately, many of us just feel the thanks when we're close to losing it. Then the thanks is strong. Then our prayer is just give us another boring day. Even during these difficult times, we have so much to be thankful for. Can you imagine if this would have happened 30 years ago before the ability to Zoom and to still see each other's faces, to still learn and grow and inspire each other, to still connect with friends, perhaps more now more than ever before. We will get through this and we will actually get stronger than ever. But let's find the means to be thankful for that we are alive and that we are healthy. And at the same time, be there for those who are less fortunate. I'll conclude with just a story from the former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yisrael Meir-Lau. He shared this at a JLI, a Jewish Learning Institute conference, several years ago. He says that I was serving, this is in the 70s, I was serving... Oops, sorry, he, guys. Says. Check it out. he says, I was serving as a chaplain in the Tel Aviv hospitals and they vacated one of the hospitals to just be a hospital for the injured from the Yom Kippur War. There were many who were burnt because of tanks that were set on fire. It was gut-wrenching to be a chaplain and to see such young men and women in such physically in such a horrible state. But one day I was walking through the hallways visiting and Rabbi Lau says I heard singing coming from one of the rooms and I traced the sound and I was intrigued it came from a patient and it was a patient who didn't seem to have burns on his on his body but he had big bandages covering his eyes and he asked the nurses what is the story of this young man singing and they said that he had a lot of shrapnel that was that by bombs and was put, thrown in his eyes. And he's he doesn't have his eyesight. But he has such a beautiful voice it's been so healing for us for the nurses the staff and for the patients just hearing his beautiful voice. They were all lifted and Rabbi Allah was so inspired by this young man singing. Even with these big bandages covering his eyes. And he found his story that he was from the West Galilee in the north of Israel, and that he was about to be brought into surgery. And his parents were by his side. And of course, the parents were shattered of their young son, who was threatened with the loss of eyesight. He went into surgery, and the doctor came out with a not a good look on his face that said it all. And he says, I said, I'm sorry, I tried everything I can. I was able to remove the shrapnel, but I wasn't able to regain his vision. In one eye, there's no chance. In the other eye, there perhaps is a chance with a new a doctor who's been trying different experiments, experimental treatment and surgeries in the United States, I would be happy to send him all of the scans and all of the tests and see if there's any hope. And they said, of course, please send it. And they contacted the doctor in the United States who was not Jewish, but he was a lover of Israel. He was a religious man. And he said, I went through the the files. And he said, exactly like the doctor in Israel, that in one eye, there's no hope. In the other eye, there's a 30% chance. And I love, I would love to do this for a soldier defending his homeland. I would waive my fees, waive the costs entailed. But you would still have to pay for travel, which is to travel for the soldier, the injured, and someone to accompany him, and also for the tool for the hospital that we need to use and for the all the necessary equipment that will be used, that will you'll have to pay for as well. And it was going to be 150,000 American dollars. And that poor Sephardic community in the north of Israel banded together. They raised every dollar they can. They came up with the money so that their soldier, that they looked at him as their own son, so that he could have a chance for his eyesight. He traveled to the United States. He went through the surgery. The doctor made sure before to not let anyone get too excited, not give your hopes up. But they went through a very, very long surgery. And after, in the recovery, they took his bandages off. And slowly, he lifted, the doctor lifted it. And with his parents at his side, they were waiting for the moment to see. Could our son see? The soldier squinted, turned to his right, and sees his father. And he yells, Abba, Abba. He turns to his left, he sees his mother. And he cries, Ima, Ima, can you see? They ask him. And he says, yes, I can. He regained 30% of his eyesight. He returned to Israel for his recovery. And a few months later, the doctor called that he's never been to Israel. And he was on his way for a conference in China. And he was asking if perhaps on the way, he could stop by Israel and visit the soldier. And they were thrilled. The entire community traveled from the north to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, in Lud. And they had signs waiting for his arrival. Todah, you're our hero. Israel loves you. He disembarked from the plane and they started singing with this non-Jewish doctor. Thank you. They embraced him. Thank you for giving eyesight back to our son the whole community of the Sephardic section in Israel, they treated their son, this son, as their own. The soldier is our soldier. ben they said. Rabbi Lau concludes that I was there. I saw the joy of the community celebrating with this doctor. And the doctor himself had tears streaming down his face, realizing that he was able to help not only this young, this young man, but the whole community, the whole Israel. Rabbi Lau says later that I couldn't help but think that all of us just wake up with our eyesight expected. All of us just expect 2020 vision. And yet, over here, just to save 30%, they made this man look like a hero. And he, in fact, was. Because, friends, we have so many blessings. Yes, there are hard days. But we have to remind ourselves and look at the goodness around us. And be grateful every morning when we say those blessings. We say, thank you, God, for giving us eyesight. Thank you, God, for giving us the ability to stretch and to stand up straight. That we could go to the bathroom. That we can walk in a a straight line. All that is part of our blessings. And we pray for those that don't have it, that may come speedily and completely. Many of, of our, in our community ask how I always quote the Rebbe. His physical passing was 26 years ago, but he continues to inspire us because the Rebbe had this aura of authenticity, humility, optimism, idealism, that it always shines through in his conversations, in his Torah teachings that we have, and I study every day, in his videos of his talks, you see this aura of light, of optimism, because he lived during the darkest period of Jewish history. He lived during the the Holocaust. And yet, he saw a beautiful world. He saw the building blocks of Mashiach, of the future redemption, the time of peace. He saw not what we are today, but the potential of what we can be tomorrow. He saw in the Lewis, not only after he emerged, but he was already able to see the greatness in a Lewis that he arrived that morning to the World Trade Center. The Rebbe wasn't naive. He saw things exactly as they were, but yet he saw the goodness as the true essence of our being, the true essence of the universe is bright and is good. And when you were in his presence, you knew it. You felt it. When I was by the Rebbe, I remember turning to my mother and saying, Rebbe, uh, Ma, the Rebbe has blue eyes like me, which I had when I was little. Because the Rebbe emphasized that light dispels darkness. And this is never even a battle. If you put a light in a room, there's never a chance for the darkness to be stronger than the light, And in fact, specifically when you have a dark room, the light shines brighter. Because if right now I were to shine a light, you wouldn't be able to see it so strong. But if the light was off and I would shine a candle, it would be such a bright candle. So yes, we're living through challenging times. We're living through a pandemic, but even during a pandemic, we can find joy. And you know as well as I know that joy is contagious. So I wish you all that this new year, this this Shana should be a Shana Tova, a sweet year. And that while we have the pressure and we're in a place of narrowness, remember that we need to sing and we need to be joyful. We need to be grateful and thankful. We need to work extra hard to bring that light because this is a new year. It's gonna be an amazing year. It has to be, we're ready for it which begins just in 24 hours with the new year. I bless you all that this year should be full of prosperity, both materially, but especially spiritually. Continue growing, searching for meaning, finding it in Torah. Do an extra mitzvah. And remember, your one act of kindness, of goodness, of love, can shine the world, can change the world for goodness can have an effect on everyone around us. As we see from this, not even something, this nano, you can't even see it with your own eyes, was able to change the whole world. Now, one person of 7.7 billion people was not affected by this virus, something that you can't even see with your own eyes, how much more so in the goodness. If we do something positive, you may not be able to see the effect, but you should know that it has effect on the entire world. So I encourage you, take upon yourselves for this new year, of 5781, to make a difference, to enhance your observance, your Torah learning, and now there's so many opportunities. Of course, you could tune into our classes, Adina's Torah and Tees, and many incredible classes, or mine, but also just worldwide. Just go on jewishnovato.com forward slash Torah, or on any site, go on chabad.org, or Torahcafe.com. You will be filled with an enormous amount of inspiration adina my wife and i are right now into rabbi josh gordon he gives a daily study of the daily torah portion but with such humor and wisdom and the tanya Torah portion of the day it fills you up it's good for you and it's good for the world so shana tova may be a sweet year and a reminder that for the Rosh Hashanah, we don't blow the shofar on Shabbat this year. Shabbat does the work for us, but we will be blowing the shofar on Sunday morning. We have a whole bunch of different offerings of services to make sure it's as safe. We have already one service that we're doing in, the, in someone's backyard that has already filled to capacity. We have a limited crowd, so everyone could be socially distanced of six feet on either side wearing masks, but we'll hear the shofar together. If you can't make it to that, that's a 90 minute service. We already added a second service at 1045. You could still sign up for that one on Sunday morning. And you'll get the information of where it is after signing up. But at Miwok Park, it'll be a short 20, maybe 25-minute service. You could hear the shofar if you're very worried. You could still stand on the sidewalk. And you would still hear the shofar. I could blow this thing pretty loud. And we'll also do the tashlich, a meditation of throwing away the negativity from the past year. allowing the goodness for the new year it's called which means the cast away we do it by the novato creek we're supposed to do it by a a body of water and if you can't make it if you're so busy at 12 o'clock on sunday you could come uh, in front of our home at um at 6 p.m you could also come to hear the shofar for a short sweet safe and sound service so shana tova a sweet year to you all and may we see each other very soon in goodness and health and may be Uh, May we be inscribed for a, a year of only health, meaning, and purpose. Shana Tova to you all.